Hello, welcome to War College. I'm Matthew Galt. And I'm Jason Fields. Why, Jason Fields, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. It's an absolute pleasure to have you back on. Yeah, I've been away for a really, really long time, but I mean, as long as I've been gone, you've been doing a fantastic job. I mean, the the show sounds great, and uh, I think listeners are happy, so... (laughs) <laughs> you know, people will wonder why I'm back. Well, we don't talk about history enough, A. Uh, and it turns out that uh, uh, I missed having you. And it's really hard to do a podcast with 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 only two people and one host. It's a giant nightmare. So uh, I needed you back. <laughs> well, like I said, I'm really thrilled. And uh, I miss the show. I mean, I've I missed doing it. I'm the great people that we talk to every week. And, uh, you know, you always come away from it knowing something you didn't know before. I mean, whatever the reason why you decided to ask the question in the first place. Um, yeah, I'm always surprised. Well, I'm glad that you're going to be back and going to be asking questions. Well, I got plenty of questions. Let's hope the guests have answers. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts. Hello, welcome to War College. I'm Matthew Galt. And I'm Jason Fields. Elizabeth Brawl is a senior research fellow at the Royal United Services Institute for Defense and Security Studies in London. It is the oldest defense think tank in the world, and Brawl leads its modern deterrence program. She's also a columnist at Foreign Policy and the host of the On the Cusp podcast. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So this week, we wanted to look at how policing works in Europe uh, and the differences between it and the United States, and in particular, I want to talk about your recent foreign policy column uh, titled Cops Could Learn from Italy's – Jason, you're going to have to help me out. I don't know why I can't say the word. <laughs> um, I only can say it because I was in Rome for, oh, an entire week. You know, so uh, what? So it's Cops Could Learn from a Lesson from Italy's Carabinieri. Thank you. Um, so it's a different kind of police force, uh, kind of a category that we don't really have in America. Um, so first, can you kind of explain the concept of their, their gendarmerie, right? Uh, they are. So what, what, they are. what is that? So it's essentially what you might call a, a hybrid between military and police. And, and when you say that, people think, oh, it's military police or it's something really sinister because it's a police run by the military. But it's actually a, an old uh, concept or an old fashioned concept. Uh, so the, the Carabinieri in particular were founded uh, 206 years ago. So even before Italy itself was founded, they were founded by by the king. 
which is what Italy had back then, uh, King uh, Victor Emmanuel I of Sardinia. And they were formed to protect both uh, the country, the country of Sardinia in that case, from both uh, um, internal and external threats and, and, and aggression. And so that's really what the Gendarmerie Force is about. It, it, it's really a multi-use force and historically or traditionally has been part of, of uh, the Ministry of Defence or the Department of Defence but with policing duties as well. So how does that make them different from the army itself? Because Italy does have its own uh, actually official army. Yes, it does. So the, the Italian army is called the Esercito Italiano, and it does what, what, tradi- what uh, armies traditionally do, um, uh, territorial defense, uh, expeditionary uh, um, Missions, but what what the Carabinieri do is, is well, as I said, a combination of of military duties and police duties. And what's interesting is that um, in in peacetime, which is has been for a very long time now, uh, domestically the Carabinieri focus on on policing duties, and that's everything from community policing uh, to extremely uh, complex investigations involving uh, the mafia, for example, which is of course Italy's biggest uh, biggest. Uh, criminal uh, enterprise. So they focus on, on, on a range of duties uh, in, in that criminal justice field, but abroad, uh, and that's what makes them different from, from your traditional police force, uh, they train other countries' police forces in what's called stability policing. So they are part of um, of UN missions, UN peacekeeping missions, for example, which uh, traditional police forces are not. And so they, they really bridge that divide between what is it an army does, what is it a police force does, uh, when, for example, in, in Kosovo as part of K4, they have training um, uh, local forces and local police forces to, to essentially keep the country safe and, and, and calm. And that's something that that the army would be, the Italian army or indeed any army would would struggle to do simply because that's that's uh, they they do tariff, territorial defense. They can do a little bit of, of partner training, but they don't have that sort of those specialist skills that the, the Carabinieri have. And just very quickly, if I may add, that's what makes the Carabinieri so incredibly popular uh, on, on foreign missions that the Italians get many more requests for Carabinieri uh, foreign deployments than than, than they can handle. They are still different, though, from the local police. It's not that there aren't local police in Italy, right? That's right. So there are really uh, three main police forces. There are the Carabinieri, there are there is the uh, uh, Polizia, which is what we might call the, the traditional police or the regular police. Then there is the traffic police, and there is also the Guardia di Finanza, which is the the uh, the agency. Um, also affiliated with the armed forces that handles financial crime. So it's, it's all these four uh, forces, but, and you might think it would uh, end in, in, in complete chaos, but it seems to be work to, to work for the Italians. What are the different, I guess, jurisdictions? Like, how would you know, do, do you call them or is it something that they kind of get assigned to take on a case or a task? 
Yeah, so you would call um, the equivalent of, of 911 if, if there's a crime. But it's interesting, often the Italians, often the Italians just say, well, uh, call the Caracanieri rather than saying call 911. So that, that really illustrates how uh, present they are in society. But it's, it's important to remember that they are a, a, um, a national force. So uh, very much unlike uh, American police forces, or I'm told, I'm supposed to say police agencies, uh, unlike um, American police agencies, they are they have a, a national structure, um, and uh, they, uh, whereas uh, the Polizia has, is, is more uh, locally focused, uh, but, it, but for all uh, law enforcement or, or, or criminal cases, or if, if you find you're being uh, uh, Attacked, or you're having some sort of problem where you need to call the police. You just call the 911. You wouldn't call the um, the carabinieri uh, specifically. Uh, and then, if if um, uh, your your case can then be brought to the carabinieri if they are the uh, the force that is responsible. And so, I, I think what's really interesting about them is that they have this uh, national reputation and. Uh, uh, Officers moving around the country on, on different assignments, um, and we can talk about that later. But I think it's actually something that, that keeps them on their on their toes and keeps them uh, learning all the time. So it's actually in that case sort of like um, the way the U.S. Army works, where people are constantly changing their stations. Exactly, and it's it's something that that is uh, that every armed forces, uh, every military organization does. Uh, so you, you, you have an assignment for three years or, or a posting or a tour, and then you, you move on to two years or three years, and then you move on to the next one. And it's something that obviously works very well for the armed forces, uh, but hasn't been seen as something that, that the, the police should do, because it's, it's obviously uh, in the U.S. and in most other countries. It's, it's a local agency, and, and you become a cop in your hometown, and, and <laughs> that's where you stay. Uh, but and that's what make the, makes the Carabinieri so different, uh, different um, that, that they have uh, the equivalent of tours or, or postings uh, at, uh, at a, a similar rate to what the, the U.S. Army, for example, has. And that can help with corruption, too, right? I mean, if you can't have the same ties that you might have if you were there for 10 years, 15 years. Yes, uh, and I think most of all, it just keeps you uh, alert and keeps you um, learning new things. And, and of course, the downside is, and what many people would say, was is that, that it, if if you spend uh, three years in a community, then you're not going to develop the sort of ties that you would need um, to be a good uh, community police officer or to to conduct complex investigations simply because you don't know people well enough. Um, and there is that downside, but the upside is that that you never, uh, you rarely become complacent, and uh, um, and you obviously also have some sort of career path where um, you, you it's it's in your interest to want to develop because you can uh, you can rise through the ranks not just within a town but within the country. Okay, but the. I think just from an American perspective, some of this strikes me as part of the – like a lot of our complaints about the police um, here are that they are from outside of the community, um, that they are too militarized. Why do you think that this works in – that stuff like this works in Italy but it may not work or is not working in America? Um, 
And, you know, I think one of the things that we had discussed a little bit before the show is training, right? Yeah. I I think primarily what works really well with a carabinerian, and I, I, I should say, I'm, I'm not saying that every carabinieri is, is a hugely uh, successful officer or that there are no flaws whatsoever. There are flaws within the carabinieri corps as well. But I think what works really well for them is that they are... Uh, they have military training. They know how to handle weapons, but they rarely use them. And that is the secret to their success, um, that they are out in the community. But you you just wouldn't know that, that they have any weapons. And often they don't have weapons, which is what happened to that Carabinieri officer who was killed very recently in Rome by an American teenager, as it happens. He was uh, uh he apprehended a teenager, no, two two American teenagers who had stolen a, a backpack from from a, a drug dealer in Rome. And um, when he apprehended them, one of them stabbed him to death. Uh, that was a Caribbean officer carried no weapons. Uh, and then and in that case, it ended badly. But ordinarily, it, there just isn't a lot of violence against Caribbean because I would maintain. Uh, people have respect for them simply because they they they, they don't uh, carry weapons. They are very good at engaging with with people, and, and they are very good at de-escalating. Um, and so I think uh, since you since you asked about, asked about training as well, that's that's one of the reasons they are successful. <laughs> they they know how how to handle weapons, but they are also very well trained or extremely well trained in how to de-escalate situations and and obviously uh, still get their man they they uh, or, or woman for that uh, for that matter. Uh, they. Uh, managed to arrest uh, countless mafiosi uh, every year, despite not having the sort of uh, uh, armored personnel carriers and, and, and uh, other advanced equipment that, that uh, U.S. Uh, police agencies have. Do they deal with protests like what we've been having in the United States recently? They do. And in fact, that's... Uh, I would argue how they cut their teeth in, in modern time. As, as, uh, as I mentioned, they've been around for more than 200 years, but for a long time, they were sort of uh, uh, not hugely respected. And then in the late 60s, but primarily early 70s, Italy had uh, went through a, a horrible uh, uh, stretch um, and uh, had domestic terrorism. So you'll, re- uh, you'll remember the, the Red Brigades, um, and it also had uh, violent student protests, and it was all very, uh, very uh, unedifying. And uh, that's where the Carabinieri learned, or, or uh, I shouldn't say perfected, but uh, hugely improved their crowd control skills. And that's something that has uh, served them ever since. And I, I think uh, that has also helped um uh, increase or, or uh, improve their reputation so that in ju- that today they have a, a fantastic reputation. And um, it's interesting, for example, to, to think about the, the peacekeeping missions they have served on uh, in the Balkans. They have uh, taught exactly those skills to, to local police forces on behalf of, of, uh, you know, of uh, the international community. And that has been extremely uh, valuable, I think, uh, for example, in a country like Kosovo. So what can we get into specifics as much as, as we know about what their training entails? Like how long is it? Um, you know, what are they what exactly do they do? Like how long if you sign up to do this, how long are you in that kind of thing? 
Yeah, so you you sign up to become um, a carabiniere. carabiniere. Um, you spend uh, your initial training almost like a, um, a military officer in training, uh, living in barracks, and then you go out into the community. Um, uh, but what's important, what what makes a carabiniere different from from U.S. police officers is that they uh, then. Uh, regularly return for more training and what's also really uh, interesting I think is that they sometimes live in barracks they, they live in barracks during their training then they may live out in the community with their families um, and then they can they return for more training and they also return to some assignment some assignments where they live in barracks so it's it's um, they they never I think get stuck in a particular uh, position or a particular place or a particular way of thinking. And here is something that's really interesting or really important, not just interesting, but important. They are also the lead agency in NATO's Stability Policing Center of Excellence, which is based in in Vicenza, which is a, a, a city in northern Italy, where they teach exactly these skills to to uh, whichever countries want to learn from them, and that's a fantastic contribution, I think. And I I, I sort of think um, that it may not be a bad idea for for a few uh, American police agencies to to come visit. Obviously, stability policing is is different from what you do um, as a sort of bread and butter of of city policing. But still, um, American police officers could learn a great deal from from the Carabinieri and and maybe come and and, and live and serve with them for for a little while and, and see how you could do things a different way, even though I realize there are differences between the U.S. and Italy Primarily, the, the huge number of weapons that are uh, that circulate in, in uh, among the American population. So, but even bearing in mind those differences, I think there is a, a great deal that American uh, police officers could learn from from the Carabinieri. Are they well paid? They are paid like um, like other civil servants, and so they get uh, it's essentially the, the same pay structure as the armed forces, and and um, Having had uh, a father-in-law once upon a time who was an Italian general, I, I, I do have some familiarity with, with the pay structure, and it's it's, it's not hugely well paid, but they, um, it's it's a, a safe career, and it's uh, it comes with, uh, for example, the thirteenth month, which is a, a very Italian thing. Um, where you can get uh, for Christmas, you get or in December you get two months' salary, and um, so it's. I, I guess it's uh, you could say it's it's like uh, civil servants everywhere, not hugely well paid, but uh, but uh, respectable and obviously a, a safe career. Well, sometimes also I think that there's civil services looked at differently in Europe than it is in America, right? There's a different culture around it. I think um, sometimes it feels like in America the only the only part of the saying civil services broadly that's respected is the military. You raise an interesting point. So I, I lived in the U.S. for 12 years and uh, and I'm actually married to an American. Um, so I, I, um, I think I, I keep my ear to the ground there. Uh, you are right that uh, there is huge appreciation for for the armed forces as as a 
as, as a service to the nation in the U.S. in a way that, that we don't have here in Europe. But it, it does clash with maybe the, the, the lack of appreciation that most people uh, feel for, for, <laughs> for any uh, federal government workers, which is really what, what armed forces, uh, members of the armed forces are. Uh, yes, now that I, I think about it, you, uh, and, and again, you raised an interesting point that uh, we probably respect civil servants more here in Europe. And I think it's because there is this uh, history of benevolent government in many of our countries, not, not all countries, of course. And there isn't this suspicion of, of, of uh, the capital or, 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 or government in general that, that uh, many Americans feel. Uh, coming from Sweden myself, <laughs> I, I think uh, uh, so it's, it's just one extreme. Swedes just trust the government uh, to a huge degree, and 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 think that civil servants are uh, are very respectable people, and that so that sort of uh, confirms what what you just said. So I'm just wondering about uh, one of the biggest complaints right now in the United States is that police are protecting police. That when bad actions take place on behalf of one officer, the other officers create what you know, we call the thin blue line (laughs) and uh, they won't report on each other. I just wonder if you know about whether there are similar issues um, in the Carabinieri or, you know, in other forces in Europe. Everywhere, simply because you're keen to protect or be loyal to your your comrade in arms. Um, But I think the difference between... Um, American police officers and Carabinieri, and now I'm generalizing terribly, uh, but I think the difference is that uh, the Carabinieri spend so much time out uh, in the community that I think they feel more connected to the to the local population than American police officers may do. And obviously, there are many fantastic American police officers who spend a lot of time uh, talking to troubled kids and, and to others uh, who may otherwise. Um, slide into a life of crime, but um, if we just look at the way the Carabinieri have been uh, working during the coronavirus pandemic, I think it just illustrates how they operate. So they, the ones who are out uh, working in the community, have uh, it was decided uh, that they would offer to um, retirees, they would offer um, the opportunity for those retirees um, to receive their pension at home. So the way it works in Italy is that if you're retired, you go and collect your pension at the post office. Well, what do you do if, <laughs> if, you, if you have to shield in place? Uh, you can't go to the post office. And, and because you're retired, you're uh, most likely very vulnerable and, and you're often 70 or older. So you're stuck at home. Somebody needs to get your, pen, your pension to you. So the Carabinieri decided that, that, that they would offer that service. And so uh, retired people could um, could essentially authorize the Carabinieri to collect the pension for them. And that's what they did. So they've been uh, in all these towns and cities around it, Italy, they've been uh, uh, bringing people their pensions. And that just brings them, it, it illustrates how close they are to the people and it uh, strengthens that bond. And they've been uh, bringing food to, to homeless people and to vulnerable people and to families who, who uh, were struggling. And again, that brings them closer to the people. And I think 
uh, helps them see people as as just fellow human beings as opposed to to somebody who might commit a crime. That sounds sort of terribly um, touchy feely uh, and and maybe uh, uh, something that just couldn't apply to the U.S. But I, I keep thinking, what if uh, in 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 tough neighborhoods, what if police officers were to to uh, in some sort of a time of crisis, including coronavirus, if they were just to, to uh, come around and, and maybe uh, see if people needed anything, and that would help them to to, to establish such bonds, and it would help them to be seen as, as a friendly institution and, and not as, as a threatening one, and um, it would also help maybe de-escalate, de-escalate uh, situations when when dangerous dangerous uh, situations do occur. I'm not sure that would work here. Because they do do some of that, and it's you. And sometimes, though, like they uh, they perform wellness checks, uh, and sometimes because of I think a lot of different reasons, uh, some of it comes down to really piss poor training. They the the American police end up turning wellness checks into crime scenes. Um, so a lot of the police shootings yeah. have started that way. It just feels like there's a there's a culture difference here that I'm not sure is that at this moment in American life feels insurmountable, and I feel like that's why we're seeing what we're seeing is everyone's so frustrated that they're not even sure. Like we're we're at, we're in a place where defunding the police and like tearing down the entire institution is on the table. And being reasonably discussed in major American cities, right? That's how bad things have gotten here. Yeah. Um, and so the idea, like, uh, like I hear what you're saying, but the idea of, of, uh, like this, this kind of this branch of the military, like showing up to to people's homes to check on them and like trying to integrate into the community is just, it feels so anathema to me. Um, and I think that's just because I'm an American and because I've grown up in this this paradigm where the cops have not been good guys here for a long time. I I have a question, a sort of a thought maybe in Italy, you have migrants, right? I mean, it's been the migrant crisis for the last few years. Um, And I am going to guess the migrants don't look at the Carabinieri the same way that other groups do. Cause that's one of our biggest problems here in, in the United States is that there's a large part of the population that actually still does like the police, but uh, minority groups are, you know, disproportionately targeted. Yes, that's, that's, uh, that's a good point. I think so. So the migrant crisis has been a crisis mostly uh, in the South where, where, which is where people arrive and, and where you, you have these, Tense situations, and it's it's completely unclear uh, where these migrants should go. Because the, the the point is that they arrive in Italy not because they want to stay in Italy, but because it's it's the closest part of Europe that and and Greece. Um, so and then of course many many of them uh, try to get to Germany or or in fact to Sweden, which is you know sort of the, the best countries in in Europe to to uh, to live in as a as a as an asylum seeker. Um, but you're right. Uh, many asylum seekers may not see the Carabinieri uh, in the same way as Italians do, um, and that's something that uh, where the Carabinieri may may need more training. I think they they are still 
um, they they still behave in a very professional manner, but it's it, they will need to establish those links with with minority communities as well. And I know there have been some issues in the past between uh, Roma uh, in Italy and and law enforcement. Um, but uh, that sort of training will uh, become necessary or we can, will become even more necessary as as the number of of uh, migrants in Italy increases and. Um, uh, just as, as a precautionary measure, I'm not saying that that they will commit more crime than than uh, people who were born in Italy. But but if the Carabinieri could establish those sort of uh, community links with uh, of the same uh, quality that they have with with uh, uh, people who were born in Italy, I think uh, that that would be a very positive thing. But you're right; it's it's it is. Uh, in a sense, a similar situation to uh, what is the case in the U.S. And, and unfortunately, I think the relations between minority groups and, and, and law enforcement agencies uh, are not perfect anywhere. Uh, we've seen um, we've seen very tense relations uh, outside the U.S. as well. Uh, I mean, I would I would say, uh, for example, here in the U.K., the police has been maybe unfairly uh, targeted because it really doesn't use the same aggressive uh, uh, techniques that American police officers do. But it's not to say that, that the tension doesn't exist. But again, it, it comes down to training. And that's, I think, where, where the Carabinieri are, where they completely outperform uh, American police officers, simply because they, they have access to training that, that American police officers don't. So there's just one other thing I would mention, um, and Matt, actually, you tell me what you think, too. Um, uh, American police officers are trained for specific purposes, right? There are no national standards for policing, right? I mean, there may be some forces that are more professional than others. There may be some forces that are better at crowd control than others um, and less violent about it. But there are no national standards. And I guess that's one thing about the Carabinieri is that it's by definition a national standard. Yes, exactly. And um, with national oversight, so you sort of can't hide in, in your in your town um, because because it's 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 a town where you know, that doesn't really where that where nobody really sort of looks. Yes, they look because you will be examined when you move, at the very least, when you move on to your next position, uh, you will, your, your record will be examined. And now people say, oh, she's proposing a, a national police force in the U.S. I, <laughs> I, I, who, I, I wouldn't go uh, that far at all. And who am I to, 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 uh, to sort of dismiss American? We also have, na- well, like we have national police forces here, right? We have the FBI and the ATF and these law enforcement agencies that do operate on a national level um there it's different but we do and i you know the standards that they that they adhere to are not the same standards that local law enforcement does but they do exist yeah but imagine if you had something like that that involved community policing um uh, and I, where yeah where local citizens could actually uh, regularly interact with with uh such a force. But I think it's possible in the US, even within the, the federal structure, or even within the city-based structure. Uh, so what if there were training uh, uh, 
if there was a, a training um, curriculum for police officers where they would um, every three years uh, or every five years um, uh, be trained at something like um, Fort Leavenworth or what have you, uh, for the, but not not at military installations, but at, at their own uh, training centers and, and would receive the uh, the, the latest training and, and also uh, maybe get a reminder about what it is they are supposed to do. Uh, I think that would go a far way. Of course, that would require cities teaming up to, to form such uh, regional units for police training. But I think uh, that's more uh, feasible than, than simply defunding police, depart- police departments and, 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 uh, and uh, starting them all over again. All right, we're going to pause here for a break. We'll be right back after this. Hey, sleepyhead. Why so sleepy? Oh, it's because your mattress is a bag of potatoes and scrap metal. You should try a Nectar mattress. With award-winning layers of comfort, you can sleep easy knowing you got incredible value. Mattresses start at just $499, and you get hundreds of dollars in accessories thrown in as well as a 365-night home trial and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com. All right, listeners, welcome back to War College. Do you all want to talk about the Stasi? <laughs> how, much, how much time do you have, Elizabeth? Uh, we can talk about the Stasi. Um. Wow, we could do two episodes at once, man. Is that what you're thinking? <laughs> well, no, I'm just saying we've talked for we've talked for about half an hour. I feel like we've yeah. we've we've been through yeah. that topic, and I think that yeah. uh, there are it would be it, it would be bad. We, I'm trying to push the show for an hour right now, and we have someone here who wrote a very interesting book about a different kind of police force, and we should talk about it, right? Mm-hmm. Happy to. Um, it's always a good time to talk about the Stasi. Yeah, it is. It, <laughs> so, so kind of. Uh, I guess my transition here is. So we've looked at what one kind of like good European police force. You have written a book called God's Spies, which is about uh, another kind of police European police force. Um, is very very different. It's about the Stasi, but it kind of has a specific bent and an angle. Can you tell us about your book? Yes. So the Stasi, um, just for those of you who are born, who were born after 1989, the Stasi was East Germany's secret police. So the Stasi uh, is, is is a uh, is a slang word. The official name is the MFF, so the Ministry for State Security, and it was an enormous agency, government agency, where led by somebody called Erich Milke, General Erich Milke, uh, who was Minister for State Security, and this. Uh, ministry, which operated as a police force uh, with uh, corresponding titles all the way up to, to uh, full general, um, actually managed to, to keep track of, of the entirety of uh, East Germany with its uh, all of its aspects, its civil society, its athletes, its churches, um, its uh, political parties, such as uh, as they were, because it was obviously an authoritarian country, um, its children, its its uh, retirees, its workers, and the Stasi knew you might you might say knew every thought of every East German, or at least every thought they expressed. Um, 
And my book deals with one particular aspect of the Stasi, which has been uh, has barely been written about it at all, which is surprising because it was so important. Now, East Germany had um, had a, a very a vibrant uh, uh, religious community, or, or it had a very vibrant uh, Lutheran church. So Luther was born in in what is now what was what then became East Germany. And by the way. Uh, 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 those Lutherans impressed uh, Martin Luther King's father so much when he went to visit that he then uh, renamed his son and, and obviously made, remade, uh, named him Martin Luther King. So it was a very strong community, and and that was a, a, a posed a huge threat to the to the regime in East Germany because all these uh, these Christians maintained links, including to America. They had their Christian friends all over the world, and and they were in, in general just much more non-conformist than your uh, uh, your garden variety East German. So, so the Stasi had this department whose only task was to um, to undermine East Germany's churches and, and the Lutherans in particular. And uh, they were phenomenally successful in doing so. And for this book, I managed to talk to the man who led this church department. It, it was called Department 20 slash 4. Um, who led it for the last 10 years of his Germany's existence, existence, and he had been an officer in the department for, for many years before that. And uh, it's the first uh, and only time he has spoken to a journalist or a book author, and, and uh, he is now uh, obviously not very young anymore, but still very alert, but uh, he won't be around for, for much longer. So uh, I was incredibly lucky that he agreed to speak to me, and not just for 10 minutes, but for many, many hours. And uh, uh, thanks to him, I got the information that you won't find in, in any archives, including in, in the Stasi archives. So the Lutheran Church, I guess, had a history of standing against repressive regimes, too, right? I mean, this was the same. They also had a similar function against the Nazis, if I'm remembering right. Dietrich Bonhoeffer and... That's right, yeah. Uh, so he, yeah, he was a, a Lutheran pastor himself. There was also somebody called Martin Niemöller, who's, who's uh, famous uh, all over the world for his saying, first they came for the communists, and I didn't say anything, then they came for the Jews, and they didn't say anything, and so forth. And, and it ends with, and then they came to me, and there was nobody who could say anything. Um, uh, roughly, that's, that's um, mm-hmm. the quote. Um, and he, too became very active uh, in, in the resistance to the Nazis. And, and, and in general, the Lutherans are, are just very political, whereas the, the Catholic Church is primarily, they, they mostly focus on, 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 on church services, on, on the liturgy. They don't really get involved in politics. Uh, but the Lutherans <laughs> are so active, and that really bothered the Stasi, and, and uh, well, as, as it had bothered the Gestapo back in the day. Um, and the question was, so you are a socialist country, and you have this... Uh, Secret police agencies staffed by workers, because obviously to 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 uh, be somebody in the, in the worker and peasant state, you, you had to be a worker and peasant too, um, even though there were some exceptions. And so, so imagine you are a, a Stasi officer, and you are, uh, as uh, was the case, for example, with with the protagonist of my book, you are a farmhand. <laughs> how do you even figure out how to infiltrate <laughs> the church? Uh, I mean, what do you even talk? To these pastors about and and that's how they started out in in the early 50s these officers with no clue about uh, anything relating to churches and yet they knew they had to defeat this enemy 
And lo and behold, they learned on the job and became incredibly successful. They knew everything that was going on in these uh, in these um, church communities and in the decision-making organs and, and, and in global decision-making organs. There's something called the World Council of Churches, which is like the United Nations of uh, of, of uh, global uh, Christianity. They knew what was going on there too. Um, and uh, you, you won't be surprised to hear they knew exactly what was going on in those uh, peace prayers that, that grew in 1988 and, and then grew beyond um, uh, anybody's expectations in 1989 and then led to the fall of the Berlin Wall. The Stasi knew all of that. They knew uh, who was organizing it, what was planned. But, um, well, we can talk about later what happened. Well, one of the things I think is really interesting here is this idea that you're able to build a surveillance state, uh, as I would argue that the world is kind of building now. Um, you can have all of this information. You can know everything that's going on, but you can't actually stop or control anything, right? Exactly. And and that was the, the challenge uh, that the Stasi had, specifically this department, 20 slash 4. Now, they... Uh, so uh, just to, to explain how they worked, uh, they became so successful because they didn't uh, threaten, they didn't coerce, uh, they did a bit of that in the beginning, but then they gave it up because it was counterproductive. Uh, that's what the KGB did, by the way, in, in the Soviet Union. They just sent priests to, to the gulag. Well, <laughs> those priests are never going to do any do them any favors, or, or those Christians are not going to do them, do them any favors later. What the Stasi did was... Um, they recruited pastors as informants, to essentially as, as spies, to spy on, on their fellow Christians. And that was phenomenally successful because Christians, I think, are just uh, generally they, they trust one another. And so you wouldn't uh, they didn't um, they they trusted one another in a way that they didn't trust outsiders. So obviously they were aware that the, the Stasi was, was uh, keeping surveillance on them, but um, they didn't suspect that it might be the pastor himself who um, who was reporting to the Stasi. And so the, the way Department 4, 20 slash 4 did this was um, they appealed to to uh, these pastors' vulnerabilities. So some were very vain and they just wanted somebody to tell them that who, how great they were or they wanted uh, a little bit of a, a, a push in their career or they wanted goods from the West. The Stasi knew all of that. And, and when, it, uh, when it came time for the recruitment pitch or for the recruitment conversations, I should say, because it was a long courting process, uh, they were then able to to offer the sort of things that particular person uh, was interested in. And so they had this um, this core of, of really uh, dedicated spies, pastor spies who worked for them. And that's that's exactly how they knew uh, what was going on in, in 1988 and 1989 as as those peace prayers uh, began to pop up in lots of churches and then grew larger and larger and larger. And uh, coming back to your question, uh, they knew exactly where this was heading. And, and the director of the department, the, the protagonist of my book, uh, who's called Joachim Wiegand, Colonel Wiegand, uh, told the, the, the government, the regime, uh, repeatedly uh, the intelligence they had 
his department had. But here's the, the problem. What people wanted, the sort of ideas that were being expressed at these church, uh, these peace prayer services, it was so different from what the regime was willing to, to countenance. It, it, so uh, no intelligence could have saved East Germany because the people uh, were so far um, away from from uh, from the government. And, and that's how the country ended. Do you mind if I ask you a little bit about the uh, Stasi itself? Go ahead. Okay. Um, I remember when the wall fell because uh, I'm old and um, something like a third of the country was spying on another two thirds of the country. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about the scale of the organization? Yes. So it's, uh, it was enormous. And, and there are all these figures floating around you know, saying, you know, two out of 16 million East Germans uh, spied on, on, on the others. It's, it's very hard to estimate how many actually did it. So the way the Stasi operated was, uh, they had, um, they had files for everybody they had ever interacted with. And so they could, uh, so if you had a conversation with somebody who was a Stasi officer, he then, not surprisingly, would uh, record that conversation and say, I spoke with such and such. And then people who are not that familiar with with how the Stasi operated uh, will they may hear of that record or see it, and they will say, "Oh, such and such reported for the Stasi." Uh, that's not necessarily true. The the ones who reported for the Stasi, who really were agents or what you might call spies, uh, are the ones who got code names and they signed on the dotted lines, uh, committing themselves to the Stasi. But even with that limitation, it was it was a, a, a very extensive surveillance operation. The thing is, we'll never know exactly how extensive, because as you recall, in those uh, frantic months uh, uh, when East Germany was collapsing, Stasi officers popped and, and shredded lots of files. And they started, I found out, from Colonel Vigant, they started with with the current files, not surprisingly. Uh, so lots of people who were uh, uh, surveying or who, who were working for the Stasi uh, by the time East Germany collapsed, their files are, are gone and we'll never know who they were. It's kind of a... Uh... There's a lack of justice, but also perhaps a clean slate that's needed to move a country forward when it's in that position, right? Is it it's like that that level of surveillance feels like a madness that grips an area? Yes. So it's it's almost like uh, they would have needed a, a truth and justice, a truth and reconciliation commission, um, but they, they chose to do it differently so that Everybody who thought they might have been targeted by the Stasi had a right to request their file and they, there they can see who spied on them. But the thing is, they will uh, never know for sure because so many files were, were popped and shredded. Um, so the, the, the people who have been uh, unmasked now or over the years since, since the end of East uh, the collapse of East Germany are only the unlucky ones <laughs> whose files weren't popped. And so, for example, one of the people who... Um, who are uh, uh, featured in my book is, is a pastor called Jürgen Kapiske, who um, was 
phenomenally successful as the Stasi spy, and he was so successful that that East German foreign intelligence then recruited him to serve in Vienna. And uh, so his misfortune was that when he left uh, the domestic part of the Stasi to join the HVA, uh, he was then taken over by the HVA and, and his new handler, when East Germany came down, said, yeah, I've shredded all your files. But they forgot that there was a copy of his files still in the domestic part of the Stasi, and that's how he was uh, how he was found out. And uh, But he was unlucky. There are many others uh, like him whose files were shredded. And so I think East Germans will always have to live with the suspicion that people spied on them and the people who spied, including many, many, many pastors, will wake up nervous every day, worrying whether this will be the day that somebody finds out that, oh, those shreds that are still in the, in the Stasi archive that somebody's piecing together, somebody has managed to piece them together and now they have been found out. And that's 30 years later, um, the puzzle masters at, at the Stasi archive are still still putting shreds together. And so imagine that, that you did spy and imagine that you went on to serve as a pastor. You may now be a retired pastor and every day you have to wake up worrying that oh, maybe they'll find out that, that I did work for the Stasi. Well, it's the same kind of stress that they were putting other people under when they were Stasi, though, right? Yes, exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying we should feel sorry for them at all. I mean, if you commit to, <laughs> to spy on your fellow citizens for a secret police, police agency, uh, you do deserve to be found out. There, I don't think there is there is any um, we should have any compassion for them. But I, I'm saying it must be incredibly nerve wracking to know that you have that secret and that you have to worry every day that somebody will find you out. And I think, especially considering that, that most of the people who spied for the church department were, were pastors, I think they should have the decency to come forward and say, forgive me, forgive me. I, I did this and it was, it was a horrible thing I did. And, and I, I just, I just have to confess I did it. But in, in my, uh, the only person I could, uh, well, I could only f- find one pastor who had done that, uh, which is, which is incredibly depressing. Um, nobody else volunteered um, that information. Uh, everybody else just waited until others found them out, or uh, and and of course, many still haven't been found out. Can I ask a basic question? Um, yes. So we have this idea about communism that it's atheistic and wants to destroy the church, right? You know, it's not allowed, you know, there's no, no gods, no kings, etc. But so why didn't, why, the truth is obviously much more complicated, right? As your book gets to, um, why didn't they just, outlaw the church outright? Why choose to kind of go about it in, in this way? So East Germany was a proud country. It was, a, it was proud to be a civilized country. I mean, it's, it's, it's a country that has enormous cultural history. It's uh, home to uh, Goethe, Schiller. Uh, it's home to uh, Bach, of course, the, the most famous uh, composer musician who has ever lived. Um, it's home to so much of, of the cultural history of the West. And, and for East Germany to, to 
go Albania and, and essentially put Christians in, in jail or, or you know, <laughs> a ban religion altogether would have been unthinkable because it was proud um, of, of its cultural history. And we should remember that was also uh, its calling card internationally. It got lots of visitors, including um, uh, lots of visitors uh, from America who came to, to uh, Leipzig because that's where uh, Bach had served as organist for many years, who came to all those famous sites and they brought, we should remember, they brought hard currency and, and they gave uh, that sort of international recognition also gave East Germany a higher standing internationally. Um, so that was the reason. And um, it, it, it's East Germany benefited from it. We should remember, for example, 1983, which was... Um, uh, the Luther anniversary, lots and lots and lots of Western tourists came and uh, again brought hard currency because to, in order to visit East Germany from the West, you had to bring hard currency. So it was, it, I think it was both a, a, um, a matter of pride and, and frankly, a matter of, of uh, um, economics. So what lessons do you see that we should be taking away from it for, you know, the current surveillance states that are being built now? I think the lesson is that um, we are all a, a little bit like Faust. If you remember the the, um, the, the story of Faust, who, who sells his soul to the devil because the devil promises him something, promises him something in return. In his case, it's uh, the devil promises him um, uh, 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 essentially complete knowledge and and. Um, I think most of us, unfortunately, uh, uh, are easily sold or easily sell ourselves. So we want something and, and uh, we are happy to violate our integrity to get it. And without making any uh, comparisons to, to current politics, I, I think uh, there are lots of parallels between what those East, Germans past, East German pastors did and what uh quite a number of people are doing today and uh, so we shouldn't look down on on east germany and say oh, oh, oh those those uh, uh, those terrible east germans they they just signed up to work for the stasi i think we should think about what would we do ourselves in a situation like that and i hope for myself that i wouldn't do it and i think everybody we all hope that we wouldn't uh sign up to work for the stasi but i don't think we should be so sure because uh, a police agency, a successful police agency, um, targets people, targets people's vulnerabilities, and that's what this part of the Stasi did so well. It didn't need to coerce, it didn't need to threaten, it just needed to appeal to people's uh, vanities and ambitions and and grievances, and um, uh, it's it was very successful in doing so. So what we should learn is. Um, to to watch our integrity and maybe not to look down on people who who live or have lived in authoritarian countries. No, I think that's an important lesson because sometimes these things happen slowly and some and a lot of times you have people have less control over the grand, you know, political machinations that are above their heads. They have but they have control over what they do in their individual life and it's Sometimes people are just trying to survive, right, with as much dignity as they can. Um, and sometimes that means 
making really hard choices, especially when you live in an authoritarian system. Um, and part of how an authoritarian system works is it makes you sell off little bits of yourself slowly, um, without you even, hopefully without you even noticing what's happening. And we shouldn't judge those people. Exactly. And we have had the enormous fortune of living in free countries. The, the, those of us on, on this call have had the enormous fortune on, on, uh, of living in free countries all our lives. But many others have not. And, and it's interesting uh, to, to consider. So during the Cold War, uh, Americans, especially Republicans, were staunch defenders of, of dissidents in, in behind the Iron Curtain. They were often baffled that that not more people stood up to the regime. But it's not that easy to stand up to the regime when you face the prospect of losing not just your job, but maybe your education, maybe your children won't be sent to university. And on the other hand, you can do what many of the pastors in, in my book did, which is to work with the Stasi that gets you uh, 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 a better job, uh, a job that you may not deserve, but a better job. Uh, it uh, gets it may get your children a good education, and you may say, "Well, it, I did what I had to do." Um, and you may feel a bit bad about it, but you may feel you may sort of justify it by saying, "Oh, it was the best I could do in that situation." So, uh, those of us who haven't faced that situation shouldn't judge those who have. And if I can just say one more thing about uh, the officers. Um, I found in, in writing this book and, and researching this book and speaking to a lot of people that the officers um, actually were surprisingly uh, humane people. They were essentially uh, like the confidants of these pastors. They listened to them, they heard, listened to their problems, they, uh, they dispensed advice. And after the, the collapse of East Germany, since then, they've stayed in touch with, with each other, the, the uh, officers within the, this department 20 slash 4, which is remarkable. They get together uh, several times a year. And, and I find that so touching somehow because we think of Stasi officers as, as the vilest creature, vilest creature you could imagine. Uh, actually, they were quite intelligent and and clearly have very good interpersonal skills. Whereas the pastors, they are the ones who now um, exist in complete isolation because they sold out their friends to an organization that, that clearly nobody wants anything to do with anymore. And it's a, to be in that position can be a certain kind of trauma. Uh, to be, and it's not a, it's not a kind of empathy we like to practice or think about. Uh, but to be in the position of a Stasi, to be doing that job, uh, will mess with a, someone's head. Yes, yes, and I think if if you're a Stasi officer. In fact, I know that if you're a Stasi officer, if you were a Stasi officer, you, you said, okay, I serve this country. There are people similar to me on the other side, and we compete for two different systems. Uh, we work for two different systems. We compete against each other, and uh, I'm doing my work for my government, for the country I want to, to win and, and survive and win. And, and the other guy on the other side of the border does the same thing for his country. Now, of course, the difference is that East, West Germany didn't have a um, secret police uh, uh, organization. But still, I think as a Stasi officer, you could justify or 
you did justify your work by saying, I'm doing my part to help this country survive. This country that is so much uh, under so much attack from uh, what they would call imperialist forces. Uh, so <laughs> the West uh, and with the West uh, using so many uh, ways of trying to weaken our country, for example, uh, by uh, maintaining relations with our citizens. And I think if you feel that your country is under siege in that way, you will say, I, I am doing the right thing. Um, I hate to say this, <laughs> but uh, f- for the last couple of years, I've been involved in Holocaust education. And, you know, I mean, just, just to point out, I mean, that is actually, that can be used in terrible ways as well. That, you know, most regimes that are the most aggressive sell themselves as defending themselves against an outside threat. Um, perceived or real. Um, so, I mean, you know, I mean, I agree that there's, I don't know what I would do under a system like that either. I think that heroes are, as we qu- qualify them, are rare. But there are limits to forgiveness, I guess, is what I'm thinking. Yes, and I th- I think the people who deserve the most blame are the ones who are not upfront about what they are doing. So the people who um, secretly work for the other side, uh, denouncing their fellow citizens. Uh, There is absolutely nothing uh, redeemable about that. And uh, only if only if they ask forgiveness, which, as I said, almost none have done. and, and that is the depressing aspect of this. And, and then for the officers, of course, it's we as, as neutral observers can't ever justify working for a secret police agency. But I would say that, that the East Germans uh, are, were mild compared to the Nazis. I mean, the Nazis were, uh, it, it was many times uh, more vile, atrocious, horrible uh, than the East Germans, uh, but still there is there is no arguing, there is no disputing that that the Ministry for State Security was was a uh, an unethical, immoral um, organization that should not have existed in the first place, um, and uh, will it will live in infamy <laughs> for the rest of uh, well. It, I don't want to say for the rest of history, because I hope it will be forgotten. But at least for 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 the next few generations, it will live on, on in infamy because it was a horrible organization. Um, but I think uh, for the officers themselves, that uh, my point was just that that's how they they justified it. And as you as you said, uh, humans are being uh, are human beings are capable of of justification self justification in almost any situation. So. Uh, uh, Clearly, uh, just because a Stasi officer says that he feels justified having worked with Stasi, it doesn't mean that. So it was it was still a vile organization. Uh, Elizabeth Braw, the book is God's Spies, and the column is in Foreign Policy. Thank you so much for coming on and walking us through a, a wide range of topics about uh, policing in Europe. Thank you very much, and uh, thank you for your interest in both of those aspects of policing. That's it for this week, War College listeners. War College is myself and Jason Fields and Kevin Nodell. It was created by me and Jason, and we are happy to have him back. Uh, I've got a few more episodes that was recorded with just me that we need to burn through. 
uh, but we wanted to reintroduce Jason to the show and welcome him back with open arms. And he will be here from now on asking the hard questions about foreign words I don't understand and can't pronounce and history I've never heard of. Look forward to it. <laughs>